This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written, performed, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence. And now we're on episode 10. So now you've heard nine episodes of me giving the caveat about sound quality and tiny little Brooklyn apartments and pandemics and children playing on uh, concrete little splotches. So, all that still stands. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I'm glad you stuck with it this far. I think it's going to get just better and better and Maxine's getting more and more fun. So, enjoy this latest episode of Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Episode 10, chapters 18 and 19. And now... Chapter 18 Okay! Mr. Humphreys came to a dead stop and turned to face Maxine. Maxine, suddenly cut off in mid-monologue, came up short and stared at him. They had been sloshing through the stream for an amount of time that she had long since lost track of. After the initial stretch of silence on her part, followed by the badger's prompting to engage more directly, she had started talking. And she had kept talking. At first asking questions and positing speculations, then wrapping up to great wandering conclusions and ruminations. At the beginning of Book 4, it opens up and you are on the planet of Mustaloid, and you were there with like this whole world of badger-like creatures, and then you leave because you had promised Selena to help her get home, even though she reminded you that that was not what you promised her at all. And in fact, you had explicitly said that you couldn't promise that. But you do it anyway, and you leave Ms. Marleybone. It was, it was really sad. I always wish that Ms. Marleybone would have gone with the two of you. But then there were always these things I wanted to happen that then didn't happen. They were so much like life, those books. Anyway, we never find out how you got there in the first place. The third book ends after you escape from the Pulsar Empress, and then book four comes along, and boom, it's three months later. That was always the way it went, and it always made me feel like there were whole stretches of story that we never got to see and like totally missed out on. Or not totally, because there would be like these little references to things that happened between the books, so we would know that there were things we missed out on and that we would never actually get to see. Always just enough to let us know we should want something, but never enough to actually be the something we wanted. They were so much like life, those books. At some point, she'd gotten lost in the sound of her own voice and had become increasingly aware of a feeling that she had not talked this much in years. And that feeling was correct. Maxine had not talked that much in years. And there were years when she had talked a lot. As a child, in part of her childhood now quite distant from Maxine, her days had unfolded on a sea of indulgent smiles from adults who were mildly amazed that one child could generate so much verbiage. She had been slightly late to talking, just enough to give her parents a moment of worry. Then she had come firing out of the gate, mouth first. 
By the time she had reached an age where memories start to become permanent, she had already earned the nickname Chatty Cat. She barely remembered being called that. It was one of the phrases she heard in her head when she heard her father's voice. But the focus had long ago shifted to the fact that it was her father's voice and that she could still hear it. The direct association of, he's talking to me, I'm Chatty Cat, had taken a back seat, not entirely forgotten, but also not the point. The point was, it was his voice. All the same, she did remember becoming Chatty Cat. She had a memory of being with her parents and running into Mr. Alvarez, who ran the Alvarez Commissary. She remembered being eye-to-eye with everyone's thighs and having the adults around her erect a canopy of irrelevant words a few feet above her head as they stood on the promenade in front of the commissary's open door. Behind Mr. Alvarez's calves, from the interior of the shop, had come Ace, the commissary cat. Commissary cats were a common fixture on almost all century ships. They had been the idea of Gianmarco Molina. Molina had gotten the contract to set up the commissaries on the colonization ships for all of the three bigs. He had beaten out several larger competitors that had been very much favored by the people on the finance side of the industry. Pretty much every big box retailer from Earth, Mars, or both had put in serious bids but their ideas all came down to plopping one of their retail locations, basically identical to the ones on the Sol planets, into the middle of the habitation bays, with all the printers required to pump out a hundred years worth of branded crap and a giant sign that every emigre would be able to see from anywhere in the ship, including their own bedrooms if all went according to plan. The people who signed corporate contracts and reaped the corporate kickbacks, loved all of this. However, interplanetary colonization was an industry, perhaps the only industry, that was dominated as much by the psychiatric profession as it was the finance sector. The body that advised the industry on all things related to mass crisis avoidance the Committee for Emigration and Colonization Mental Health and Well-Being, or CECOM, for something a little bit easier to shout in frustration during a board meeting, had put the kibosh on turning colony ship passengers into pate geese for a solid century of monopolistic branding. Largely, they thought being subject to a single, overwhelming, and inescapable source for all the material goods was an oppressive restriction that would, within the first generation, foment resentment, then bitterness, then violence. People needed a sense of choice, or autonomy, or at the very least, the illusion of those things. Enter Gianmarco Molina. Molina was the most recent patriarch of a family who had made their money in small grocery store boutiques designed to seem like locally owned businesses, but were actually franchises. The Molinas had gotten their start running an ever-spreading chain of bodegas in New York City. 
They had been building a corner store empire for generations, and that had made a lot of money, and it had made the family quite wealthy. But they were not inter-solar system, big box store wealthy. And normally, Jean Marco might not have considered even putting in a bid and trying to compete on that level. But when he heard that all the big retailers were striking out, and why, he came up with an idea. Each ship would have three commissaries instead of one. They would all be supplied by the same storage and printing facility that would be out of sight in the below decks part of the ship. But they would be run by people, passengers, on the ship who had bought into a franchise. There would be certain products they would have to carry and certain practices they would have to abide by. But the look and the atmosphere of their shops would be left up to their discretion. And most important, they would be people, as opposed to the almost entirely automated facilities that the big guys had pitched. These places would have personality, and when you went there, you would see a person that you knew. It would feel like a choice. It would feel like community. It would feel like a relationship. It would be a monopoly. But, as anyone on CECOM would tell you, how it felt was more important than what it was when it came to keeping people trapped in a fragile can in deep space from murdering each other. The crowning touch had been the Bodega Cats. On a colonization ship, all meat was bioponic, grown in the facilities on top deck, and all of the actual animals were frozen cloned embryos, and only then depending on the conditions of the planet at the end of the journey. And even so, each of these cloned embryos had been genetically altered to be sterile, unless given a DNA patch that activated the reproductive system. From there, each successive generation of whatever animal was being bred would carry the same genetic alteration and would therefore also require the same DNA patch to have offspring. Access to that DNA patch was itself heavily restricted. Basically, to breed a live animal, much less start pumping out an entire potentially invasive animal species on a colony ship or a destination planet was a thing that required a lot of paperwork, a lot of time and effort, and a damn good reason. But then, you had the Bodea Cats, or, as they came to be known on the ships eventually, the Commissary Cats. On Earth, the Bodegas his family had made their fortune on were all homes to at least one cat. This was basically a time-honored tradition born from the age-old New York City need to keep the rats at bay. Jean-Marco, whose dad would not let the family have pets in their home, had always been fascinated and enamored of the bodega cats that lived in his family's shops, and as a kid, he knew each one by name. As he grew older, he noticed that he was not alone. The people who shopped in the stores also knew and loved the Bodega Cats, and seeing them made them happy, 
even in the shops that had cats who were standoffish and would not allow themselves to be pet, the people still smiled whenever they saw them sashaying between the aisles. Molina had successfully lobbied, with the full backing of the CECOM, to license his franchisees to clone and keep a cat, one at a time, in their establishments. The cats were sterile, and you couldn't start cooking the next one until the last one had been sent off to the great bioreclamation facility in the sky, and there were no rats on the sentry ships. But the presence of the only living pets on the ship, not counting the insects that worked their necessary magic in the hydroponics farms, had made the commissaries places with an almost funhouse appeal for every emigre on the ship, and especially for the youngest ones. Maxine was in no way immune to the allure of the commissary cats, and of Ace in particular. As the adults talked around her, she watched Ace come slinking into the doorway of the shop, settle in, and watch without watching, listen without paying attention. The animal was a fascinating set of contradictions. He had clearly come out to where his owner and other people were, and now he was making a great show of ignoring them. He was all grace and smooth movements, yet there were parts of him, ears and tail, that seemed to be in a constant state of twitchy action. She needed to know everything about this strange creature. Mr. Alvarez, what does Ace eat? Can I feed him? Does he like to eat pet? Where does he poop? I could come over and feed him every day if you wanted me to. Can I come over and feed Ace every day, Mom? I'd be real careful because he is so small. So I'd be like really, really gentle if you let me come over and play with him. I mean, I mean, I mean, if you let me come over and feed him, I really just want to watch him because he's so pretty and he's so weird and he doesn't seem to have any bones. But he has to have bones. Everybody has bones. Does he have a job? All of the adults had been cut off mid-sentence. Mr. Alvarez was wide-eyed at this sudden dam burst. Maxine's parents had a look of knowing amusement. Her father said, Maxine is uh, really good at thinking before she speaks, but then when she speaks, she says everything that she thought. The person who seemed most impressed by this sudden jag of sound and inquiry was Ace, who promptly got up, came directly over and began winding his way around Maxine, swerving to rub his flank against her legs and meowing, all of this while staring off into the distance like she wasn't really as interesting as all of this rubbing and purring might infer, and she shouldn't get a big head about it. Ooh, he's so soft! Do you think Ace is soft to himself? Do you think he thinks to himself, I'm so soft. I bet all these people would, all these not soft people would love to know how soft I am. I should go rub myself on all these not soft people. How far away does he go? I know he lives here in the commissary, Mr. Alvarez, but if he wanted to come over and visit us at our house, could he? Or is that like against the rules or something? He should visit everybody on the ship all day and make everybody happy. And then he could come home to the store every night and you could let him in and you could say to him, Hello Ace, how was your day? Did you have fun? What a good smart cat you are for making everyone so happy. Mr. Alvarez smiled down at her. 
I'll ask Ace about it over dinner, and I'll see what he says. Maxine looked up at him with wide eyes. You, you talk to him? And he talks back? Mr. Alvarez looked like this was a ludicrous question. Of course! Ace and I are old friends. That's what old friends do. Maxine looked back at Ace. When she looked back to Mr. Alvarez, there was a hint of incredulity in her young eyes. And he speaks English? Mr. Alvarez rolled his eyes. Don't be ridiculous. Cats can't speak English. I speak cat. Maxine looked back at Ace, and everyone could tell she was calculating in her mind how long it might take her to learn cat as a second language. That was why she likely did not notice all of the adults snickering into their hands as she started trying out different meows. Speaking cat, indeed, said Mr. Humphreys. I have never heard it implied that felines are any less capable of speaking English than anyone else. Maxine turned to look at Mr. Humphreys, who was standing next to her on the street of the Contiki. And watch more, I don't hold to the sort of prejudice that would infer, no matter how subtly, that one animal may not be as capable as any other animal, even cats, for all their shortcomings. What was Mr. Humphreys doing on the Contiki when she was like four or five years old? She hadn't even known about Mr. Humphreys when she was four years old. Suddenly, Mr. Alvarez was squatting in front of her, and Ace was making figure eights between the two of them, meowing as he went. She half expected Mr. Alvarez to say, So, what's with the talking badger? But she knew what he would say next. It was written in the most permanent memories of her youth, this moment. He said, And now I can see why you and Ace are such fast friends. You're just alike. He's a chatty cat, and you're a chatty cat. And with that, her mom and dad started laughing above her. Then her father reached down and swept her into his arms. So she was suddenly on their level between the two of them. Yes, that's exactly what you are. You are the chatty cat. She looked down to find Mr. Humphreys watching all of this with some interest. And from then on, that's what I was. I was chatty cat until they were gone, and then I wasn't anymore. Okay, and Mr. Humphreys was facing her in the stream bed on Oxalis. Maxine found herself momentarily disoriented. It felt as if she had left one room and entered another room, but the room she'd entered was on a different planet, it was a different time of day, and it was ten years later. She looked around the landscape had changed. The stream had wandered from the mossy, dense roots and vines of the forest canopy above to a kind of deepening ravine cut into the ground. And she could see that as they went forward, the walls of the ravine grew deeper. She could also see that poking out of the ground all along the path that the water was carving were spires of pink crystal. Where they were now... The crystals were no taller than she was, and some barely more than ankle height. But she could see in front of her that the individual spears that made up the crystal forest started to get taller and thicker. 
Then the stream turned a corner, disappearing behind the cliff face of the ever-steepening embankments, and Maxine could not see how dense or how high the geodes reached. That was very interesting, Mr. Humphrey said. Not necessarily informative and not particularly useful, but a pleasant enough diversion. Though that Mr. Ace had every reason to be quite offended, Maxine blinked. But, as I said, not particularly relevant to our current inquiry. Maxine had been entirely unaware that they were engaged in a specific inquiry. I think, perhaps, I can provide more direction to our efforts going forward, though. I think just the thing we need should be not too far beyond the next bend. Shall we, Miss Maxine? And then he was waddling toward the crystal forest, clearly expecting Maxine to come along. Chapter 19 Sumner was running. On every side he could feel them closing in. If he had looked behind him at the jagged path he was cutting through the tall grass, he could have seen them closing in. Dozens, hundreds of these small rodents with their needle-sharp little teeth chasing him, forming a rippling carpet of yellow and gray fur as they tumbled over one another in their rush to overtake him. At first, he'd felt vaguely ridiculous. A full-grown man in retreat from a bunch of tiny little cartoon cute fur balls no bigger than his fist, but then one had already bit him. It had hurt. It might have drawn a little blood, but he had kicked the thing off of his pants leg easily enough, sending it flying tuck-tailed back into the field. Then, more of them had come, and they had all started to advance on him with chubby-cheeked menace. And as he backed away, he felt a little silly. Then he fell. He had stepped back and his heel had landed on one of the mousy swarm, one that had managed to circle around behind him, and the combination of his foot landing on something foreign and alive and the panic squeak the thing had let out threw him off his balance and he had twisted and sprawled and landed Christ-posed back on the metal floor. He barely had his senses back when the swarm was upon him. They were everywhere, clawing into his calves and thighs, launching out of the grass to latch onto his flailing arms. He wailed and swatted and kicked his legs, but they just kept coming. Two for every one he managed to shake loose. He tried to haul himself up onto his palms. The very place he put his hand down was covered in a fur ball full of fangs and claws. They were ripping at his shirt and pants, determined to get at the flesh below. He could hear his clothes ripping. He could feel the little spikes sinking into his skin. But it was so overwhelming that he couldn't take stock of the damage as it was happening. Then they came at his face. A hot swell of raw panic seized him as he saw black little claws and white little teeth coming at his eyeballs, and he twisted himself into a violent paroxysm of bucking and kicking until the motion brought him to his feet. He went right past standing to full-on running. He was sprinting through the field, legs pumping, hands reaching out and grabbing hangers-on and sending them wheeling into the distance. He ran several yards before his head cleared enough for him to see where he was going. 
The Contiki loomed ahead of him. He was heading back to the ship. No, Maxine is still out there. The thought cut through his panic, and he started turning back to the wood line, giving it a wide arc for fear of losing his footing and ending up back on the ground. Still, the turn had slowed his momentum enough that the swarm started to catch up. As Sumner reoriented, he didn't break pace. He charged harder. He felt the small bodies glancing off his knees and thighs as he pistoned ahead. As the horde deepened and he didn't stop, he found himself running on fur, feeling the crunch of little tiny bones and skulls beneath his boots. He paid it no more mind than he did their little squeaks of outrage and pain. One flew at his face, and in one motion, Sumner slapped it out of the air so hard he felt, as much as heard, its little neck break. Good came a fleeting thought. He started scanning around for somewhere to go, some kind of way out of this field, into the woods or anywhere, just somewhere he would be able to see what was coming. Then he spotted, right at the edge of the forest, a large rock, two of him tall and wedge-shaped. He could run right up it and get out of this grass and away from these little monsters. He jetted towards it. But as he got closer to his destination, a clear image cut the snapping skeletons and mousy death cries, and that was of himself trapped on that rock, surrounded on all sides by a sea of open mouths and big black eyes, having to defend his futile little piece of high ground. How long could that kind of siege last? Days? Until he fell asleep or passed out from hunger or dehydration? Then they'd have him. And all of this would have been for nothing. That was how he made the choice to just keep going, right up the rock, out of the field, and past its peak. He used the rock as a launch, flinging himself high and out as far as his momentum would carry him into the darkened woods beyond, with nothing but a hope that where he landed would be better than where he'd taken off from. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.